If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. Usually we think when we think of solutions, we think of solutions that are important. And yet we fail to see many treasures around us that were, let's say, enabling us as community to survive for decades without relying on international NGOs, without relying on military institutes as, let's say, agency for uh, job market. Thirteen years later, after, let's say, this uh, this work in, um, in we established different kinds of projects that are uh, economically based and that's inspired from local communities, uh, rich knowledge in their lifestyle. But what we found out later and what we learned is that what holds the community together and the main skeleton is working together in their main crop, their main food, which is in the Fertile Crescent. In our case, it is wheat. Today, we're speaking with Lama Khatib, founder of Jordan-based Zikra for Popular Learning, which is a program which empowers community members to revalue their identity and culture through the cultivation and sharing of their local knowledge in relation to sustainable solutions. I'm a dentist by trade. I was born and raised in, outside my country. I was born and raised in Doha, Qatar. I came to Jordan in my college years, and it was a rediscovery of, let's say, my motherland. One of my graduation projects was in regard to how much knowledge people in the village have in regard to the urban dwellers, in regard to their oral hygiene and how can they take care of themselves. And this was my first introduction to, let's say, the riches of the village life. People in the village are usually seen as those who 
live a kind of lifestyle that needs to borrow from the city how to be more quote-unquote civilized mm-hmm. but they are rich in ways that uh, we need to learn from after graduation i struggled to find a job right away so i started to work in uh, distributing let's say oral hygiene kits and making some workshops and this was when i actually started to learn or let's say it will be more accurate accurate this was my journey to unlearn everything that I have previously learned on what a civilized or developed person means. And I started a project with a colleague of mine where we, let's say, aspired to reclaim local knowledge in order to find solutions for social, environmental, and economic challenges for many areas across Jordan. Usually we think, when we think of solutions, we think of solutions that are imported, and yet we fail to see many treasures around us that were, let's say, enabling us as communities to survive for decades without relying on international NGOs, without relying on military institutes as, let's say, agency for uh, job market. Thirteen years later, after, let's say, this uh, this work, in, um, in, we established different kind of projects that are uh, economically based and that inspire from local communities uh, rich knowledge in their lifestyle. But what we found out later and what we learned is that what holds the community together and the main skeleton is working together in their main crop, their main food, which is in the fertile crescent. In our case, it is wheat. And once you take this away from people, you disintegrate the community. And here we started, let's say, a, a research. How come Jordan, a place that was home, as we know, to the oldest bread loaf, documented as being 40,500 years old, now producing 2% of its needed feet after, until, up until uh, 1969, it used to produce 200%. So what happened here? There, is, there must be a story that needed to be investigated. I think I um, started maybe on the following question. So if you needed to stop me here, go ahead. Yeah, no, but you perfectly cued in my next question for you, which is just this recognition that Jordan has played a significant role in the advent of agriculture, as you shared being home to the world's oldest loaf of bread from over 14,000 years ago. Yet today, Jordan imports more than 97 of its cereals. So I'm curious to learn more about this. What can you tell us in regards to how the country lost most of its local wheat cultivation to the point where today bread made from local wheat actually costs more than imported ones? Mm-hmm. So this is a compound problem. As I mentioned, up until maybe the late 60s, Jordan, it was when Jordan started to receive white flour for the first time as part of the food aid program that was directed to Palestinian dispossessed from their land to Jordan. This flour as well was distributed to many wheat farmers in the in villages in Jordan. They received those sacks of flour as donations. Parallel to that time, the United States started to heavily invest in subsidizing the wheat growing for exporting purposes. That resulted in flood, flooded uh, of wheat in the international market, including Jordan market. So cheap American wheat left many of the small-scale farmers unable to compete in regard to prices. In addition to all of that, here the military institute started to promote itself as an important, let's say, escape for a more secure job option for the younger generation of farmers. So now you have a generation of, let's say, those who hold the knowledge of farming and growing and their offspring who joined the military. 
and you have a gap among this generation who started to look for, a, let's say, a more job-secure options. Urban development was also a cause here in Amman, which is the capital city of Jordan. It used to be the highest percentage of uh, rain-fed agriculture is now a city with condensed concrete blocks. Uh, one of the neighbors here, famous neighborhood called El Bayadr, which translates literally into piles and piles of wheat, is now a marketplace for car mechanics. IMF and World Bank also played a role in 1989 when Jordan was forced to sign an economic reform agreement where subsidies on agriculture and public transportation sector were lifted. So as a result, you will be able to receive, let's say, tons of wheat arriving from American shores up until reaching maybe Aqaba port. It will be cheaper than any wheat produced in a nearby village, which is crazy, of course. Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, it is a lot of compounding factors leading up to where you are today. And to add to all of this, you also share that with free trade agreements and structural adjustment programs enforced by international financial institutions, Jordan was not allowed to subsidize local farmers. I would appreciate it if you could elaborate more on Mm -hmm. why the country hasn't been able to subsidize its own local farmers to support its food sovereignty. Like, What created these barriers and do they still exist and persist today? They still exist. If you are asking me maybe to go through, let's say, the how of the agreement works, I'm not sure that I am the qualified person to answer this question, but it will simply mean that subsidies that are usually put to help the farmer in regard to... I'll give you an example. For example, in the 70s in Jordan, up until maybe mid-70s, there used to be a union for the farmers that was extremely efficient. It was called the Agricultural Cooperate. So they own their machineries, they have a plan, and they will go to one area to another, and uh, let's say there will be a queue of machinery use. So it will be much cheaper for farmers, instead of renting the machineries, to use it from the union, which is, this union was part of the government. It was run by the government, but it was closed as part of the agreement. Mm, I see, yeah. There's certainly a lot more to learn about this, I'm sure. But I would love to get into more of the picture of today. So after the COVID-19 pandemic hit, over half of Jordanians became vulnerable to food insecurity. And I believe it was towards the start of it when you co-created the al Baraka wheat project to promote collective farming of Jordanian wheat in order to support people's food sovereignty. Can you share more about your story and motivations to start this collective and how exactly you went about it? As in, what resources or land did you work with to get things rolling? And how did you get people on board? Well, actually, it started before COVID. Mm. It was a coincidence that COVID took place in the middle of it. So after my colleague and I went through Jordan, meeting farmers of the, let's say, the last generation of wheat-growing farmers, trying to investigate the story of this decline, severe decline in the last 40 years. We said that maybe we have to go through the experience ourselves. We have to go through growing our own wheat. Of course, we do not have a background in that. So we rented the land in one of the villages and we asked a wheat farmer to help us learn how to grow our own wheat. This was in December 2019. A few months later, pandemic hit and the lockdown took place. In June, we went to harvest 
with us lacking any previous knowledge in any agriculture, we, we were able to harvest two and a half tons. So at the time, that time, during the pandemic, here in Jordan, the police took control of distributing bread to people. Here, if you Google it, you'll find buses full of police people. They have bread and they will distribute it to neighborhoods to have a control over how bread is consumed. We, we have our own wheat and we were distributing to our friends and family. So it was a very empowering feeling. And this is something that we felt we had to share. So the upcoming season, the later season, we had an announcement on social media. If any of our friends have a plot of land that is suitable to grow wheat, and if you can lend it to us during a season, please let us know. And if you are a family or a person who wants to learn how to grow your own wheat and have your, let's say, supply of wheat for one year, you can also join. So we collected subscription from people. This will cover, let's say, the cost of buying the seeds, threshing the land, preparing it to, to be grown, and also for the small-scale farmers who will be leading the process or teaching us how to do it. And the first year, we did it with 45 families in different areas in Jordan, in Amman, inside the city. The second year, we did it with 165, in addition to five schools. They all took part in growing growing wheat in, inside Amman and this developed a, a completely different relationship to their surrounding and their city. One of them said that I used to see Amman before as blocks of buildings while I see those plots of land as transparent. Now I see it the other way around. I start noticing the food producers inside the city. They used to be transparent to me. So this is really amazing. At the end of each season, let's say the harvest that is grown together is dis distributed among families who took part or the school students. Each will get around 50 kilos. Together we will learn how to make bread from local whole wheat, how to make other dishes prepared from wheat such as uh, jarish, uh, burgol, uh, smid, semolina, so different things. Mm, really inspiring. And of course, the collective has really grown since its beginnings with hundreds of Jordanians on board. And I'm sure this is just the beginning of the movement and the collective. But I just find this to be, yeah, really inspiring. And it reminds me of our past interview when Vijay Prashad told us about the landless farm worker movement in Brazil with mm. food collectives reclaiming and occupying unused land in order to grow food. Just examples of people not waiting for permission, but really taking matters into their own hands and working with whatever they can get access to. But what else can you tell us about how this Wheat Collective works in practice today and what, what its impacts to local people and communities have been? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the project El Baraki Wheat has two arms. The first arm is the, let's say, learning, training arm where families or city dwellers take part in learning how to have food sovereignty over their main food, which is wheat. The other arm, which to us is very important, is the economic arm. What we do is basically we established a network of approximately 20 small-scale farmers, grain farmers from across Jordan, and uh, we connected them with uh, bakeries and restaurants so they can supply them directly with whole wheat flour. As simple as that sounds, this never took place before in the history of Jordan. For the past decades, the state presents itself as the only buyer for those local wheat seeds. And per ton, uh, the state does, uh, the, I'm sorry, yes, the state doesn't pay 
an efficient amount of money that is not encouraging for farmers to continue growing. What we basically did is that we pay approximately 15 to 20% more than the government pays per ton, and we take care of labor work, transportation, and seed cleaning, which is very efficient, economically efficient for farmers. We are able to do that, the, let's say, increase in price by, by making this flour popular. So now uh, we have four bakeries. One of them is a large commercial chain bakery and 25 restaurants in addition to one hotel who take their supply of whole wheat flour from those farmers. So you re reshaped the economic system of local grains completely and they compete in the market and people choose it, not because it is local, but because it is delicious, it is highly nutritious, because they know who grew it and it's connect them with their land and it's becoming part of their bodies and this is really important. And just based on the picture of current land access and economic injustice, do you see this collective as something that is scalable in practice and that is a model that can kind of be syndicated across Jordan and beyond to begin to really reverse that figure of 97% of its cereals being imported? Do you see this as something that can only work because of certain things in your local communities or something that can also scale beyond where you are? Well, it should scale beyond. But uh, when I think about scaling, I do not think that doesn't necessarily mean that the hope or aspiration is to reach 100% sovereignty in wheat. Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. If you reach 30%, 50%, that's also good. But a 2% is like an emergency uh, status. So this is really dangerous. It's really bad if you keep encouraging the farmers of the country to grow cash crops mm. and not their main food while relying on importing their, their main food. But I also think about interdependency instead of sovereignty because, okay, great. So I produce everything I need in regard to wheat and I can give the excess I have to my neighbor. But that is completely different than, let's say, having to, thinking about an open market in the region where each of the, let's say, neighboring countries collaborate in producing and distributing food among them. And this is something I think we need to think of, not regarding Jordan only, not regarding, okay, because if, you, if we focus on that, I think the, let's say, this is not very different than thinking in a nationalist way. It's amazing that we have food sovereignty, but not for us. It's very different in, if we think about it. No, but this, this food model needs to be interdependent. Yeah, absolutely. Us as neighboring countries, interdependent with one another, not to consider, let's say, oh, I have to think in regard to what's inside Jordan's border. No, not the entire region. How we collaborate with one another. Think about Sudan, for example. Internationally recognized as the food basket, not only for the Arab region, but for the world. Yet you have the youth in Sudan thinking that they will go hungry next year. This is crazy. This is insane. I think we have to rethink of what resources and, and opportunities we have around us. Here in Jordan, for example, Jordan Valley is considered the food basket in Jordan, one of the most fertile piece of land here in Jordan. The focus of their growing is cash crops, bananas, broccoli, tomatoes. If you introduce grains, whether wheat or barley, as part of the, let's say, agricultural cycle, not instead of a crop, not even going there, but part of the agricultural cycle, the grain will absorb the extra salt in the, in the land, 
uh, remember bearing in mind that it's very close to that sea region so it has it's very very salty land mm. so the sweetening of the land will let's say better the crops for the upcoming seasons it requires one third of the amount compared to vegetables and yet you have your own food produced you can save it for the entire year this is not like tomato that you have to sell within for example a week so yes we have this year we have grown 300 dunams in the area of jordan valley Hopefully, uh, next year, we will want to, to experiment with making frike with the farmers in there. Uh, I'm not sure if you, you are familiar with frike. No, I would love to learn more. So, frike is basically a green wheat that is harvested while it's green. And then uh, you set it on fire. So, ba you basically smoke it from the outside. Mm. And you can only do it with hard durum wheat because it gets uh, the, the outer shell will have a smokiness without burning the inside. And it's a, it's a dish we use it here instead of rice, for example. Frika is very, very famous uh, in, our, in our dishes. And you can increase the economic value per ton by 10% if you do a high-quality frike. So that's an excellent amount, uh, let's say, um, income-generating opportunity for farmers in the region. And by producing wheat, not cash crops. Yeah, I, I just find it really important to emphasize what you said earlier, that Revitalizing local food systems isn't about closing a local region off, but mm -hmm. kind of revitalizing that system to enable trade that actually is mutualistic and based on reciprocity rather than something that is extractive. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you highlighting that. And I also really appreciate it learning about the spirit of Barake when you share about how 10% of the wheat harvest is given to families in need and also how a farmer rejected the, the idea of using scarecrows to prevent birds from eating the wheat because the birds also have a mm -hmm. right to some of the seeds as well. Mm -hmm. But how would you introduce the meaning and cultural significance of Barake? And what are some other examples or stories you can share related to this invitation to really share rather than compete? I'll answer with, with a story, if you allow me. So before I started to grow wheat for the first time, the farmer who used to teach us told us that you have to make sure for every dunam, you have to put 14 kilos of seeds in addition to two kilos that will go for the ants. And this was a surprise for me to hear it for the first time. What, what do you mean by two kilos for the ants? And he said, you will never learn to receive al-barakah, which means the blessing and abundance, until you learn how to share mm. what you have at the beginning of the season. And that was when I, I learned about this very humbling tradition, which is basically a prayers farmers recite while they throw the seeds at the beginning of the season. I will share part of the, uh, the prayer. So the prayer goes, says, Oh God, feed us and feed through us. Feed the birds in the darkness of the night. Feed the crawlers of the earth. Feed the strong one, the weak one, and the one lying sick. So growing and planting is an act of sharing life. This is a very different mindset than, let's say, calculating the input and output of every act of growing to, let's say, uh, to achieve cash, to achieve certain out materialistic output. This is a completely different mindset that sees the human as part of, of whole, of an entire system not separated from the land, not separated from the bird, not separated from the ants. In Al-Barakawit, we try to celebrate this concept. We celebrate it as work, as being, as how we see ourselves in the surrounding, how we can even reproduce as a, as a tradition. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So it's really about 
nurturing abundance rather than holding this mindset of scarcity. And I also just think that holding the mindset of sharing and giving and abundance is how we can become more regenerative in terms of our impacts as well. And the We Collective has been, of course, helping to really reshape people's relationship with food and with the land. With this in mind, what shifts or transformations have you witnessed in terms of how this reclamation of Jordanian wheat has been changing how people look at food and relate to each other? I wonder about how reclaiming something so culturally significant to your people might be helping to also grow the intimacy and strength of your communities as well. I think I'll answer a more more basic question, which is, I think this journey has, has been brushing with the possible because at the beginning, when we started to, when we, we said that we intend to grow our own wheat and, and learn more about it, what we keep hearing from everyone is that, no, here wheat in Jordan is not good for bread. It's very poor quality. If you grow it, if it will fail. You're not allowed to grow. And... Sometimes it is enough to have one successful experience for people in order for people to reread their history and reconsider the kind of knowledge that they bear that has no roots, but everybody adopts. So this was interesting. So people started to find out, oh, we can grow. It's the, the procedure is very, very simple. The, the quantity, less variety of which you have here is very versatile, very delicious, very high in nutritional content make amazing bread. So everything that you were told about growing your own wheat has been false. So now you start reading your history differently. Mm. And that was really important. Yeah, it's really inviting people to question, I guess, some narratives that have been out there and to really revitalize this alternative story. And more broadly, you run Zikra for popular learning, which empowers community members to redefine their relationship with their identity and culture and to inspire sustainable solutions while also generating economic gains. What would you like to highlight in terms of why you felt there's a need to shift people's relationship with identity and culture? And maybe what we just shared in terms of these shifting narratives is a core part of that as well. Well, because you learn that the, the main skeleton or the backbone that holds people and communities together is growing their own crop of food together, harvesting together at the season, growing together, sharing the land, sharing one goal. And once you take this away from people, the community will disintegrate. So this is the backbone. And if you want to rebuild anything, you start from there. So this is the square one of working anything that regards to, let's say, having empowered, sovereign community that look at themselves independently. Here in Jordan, for example, the role of international NGO has been extremely, extremely politicized. And to be able to think that you can create a narrative or work without having any kind of these international NGOs in the picture is not only possible, but it's a demand. What I'm also interested in hearing your perspectives on is this idea of sustainable development. Um, in the very beginning, you kind of started 
touching on this, but I know a lot of rural and land-based communities have been pushing back against top-down and imposed ideas of development, which take agency and autonomy away from local people rather than something that is that really centers community. So when you talk about economic development and development in general, what has been central to this vision for you? I will answer in the case of Jordan. In the case of Jordan, it's for people to start noticing the riches and resources around them, and that sometimes solutions are not imported from the outside, and they are not in the hands of international NGOs. And that's not easy, because if you start working with people on that, I think they will start noticing the riches inside themselves, right? If you see everything around you in an eye of scarcity, you also see your inside as full of scarcity. If you started to look around you and notice the resources and the riches, you start to notice the riches inside you. And this is really important. And I think you can, we can inspire a lot from the ways of living and modes of living of our, our older generation and ancestors, how they were able to have sustainable lives, independent completely, in absolutely amazing ways of uh, cohesive, independent communities without necessarily labeling what they do as, oh, this is environmental, oh, this is uh, volunteering, oh, this is coexisting. But they do it naturally. They do it because they believe or they live the sense of community and they are in touch with the land. And I think we start adopting these concepts because we feel very disconnected. Here, for example, uh, one of the, uh, let's say, traditions that are very famous here in, in Jordan, I used to call the manuha, which uh, can literally translate into giving away. So basically, any shepherd who owns flocks, flocks of sheep will give part of these sheep to those who do not have any to use their milk, use their wool, and to take care of them as a way of, let's say, um, social cohesion, or let's say helping, without naming it as helping. In the harvest season, the yield will be distributed for those who do not have a piece of land as they take part in the harvesting and working. So let's say these these kinds of social systems are completely different now. People think in regard to, oh, I will pay for uh, labor and then I will sell and then I will, let's say, how much cash this will produce. This is a completely different lifestyle than the lifestyle that sees the community as the starting point for any kind of, let's say, intervention in living. Yeah, it's definitely important to reframe a lot of these visions. And we are nearing the end of our time together, but if it feels relevant to you, I did want to bring in your remark that the dominant culture in Jordan promotes instruments like the guitar and piano and marginalizes local instruments, music, songs, and dances, along with their social and cultural stories that were part of people's lives in the region for hundreds of years, end quote. How does this maybe relate to the story of the loss and now the reclamation of Jordanian wheat? And what could lie in the power of reclaiming local culture and knowledge in all of these other diverse ways as well, through music, songs, dances, and stories? Well, I believe uh, culture and art is to be a byproduct of people's direct engagement with life and with each other, for example. I'm not, I'm not sure this is true for every other, other community, but in the harvest season is usually the season where many songs are uh, produced and many dances. And it's usually a wedding season because people celebrate uh, al-barakah of, mm. the, of the season. 
so once you take this away, also art and culture disintegrate. Now we see the artist as somebody who is isolated from life, but they generate the art from the inside, not, let's say, with the engagement with the outside, the land, the people. Yeah, and that really, again, points to how the land and agriculture really holds a lot of things together. So when this has been taken away, a lot of these other cultural aspects of life could be impacted as well. And before we go into our closing, I just wanted to leave space for you to share anything else on your mind that I didn't get to ask you about, maybe any upcoming projects or anything else, and otherwise any calls to action or deeper inquiry you have for our listeners. I would like to share the experience of working with bakeries because I think that this is really important with, for anybody who is trying to work with, let's say, changing how a system works. So if anybody who is in the industry, they will know the industrial bakeries usually operate and designed to operate with white flour. Mm-hmm. White flour is distributed heavily in the world because it works well with the machinery. So it can produce well, it produces abundance, and you can sell per hour more loaves in comparison to other kinds. So working, introducing local whole wheat was not easy. Working with bakeries, it involved a lot of education and let's say trying to explore ways of even trying to reset those machineries in order for them to work with the viscosity of whole wheat flour, which is not the case for white flour. So the process is not only including, uh, let's say, convincing the businesses, it also included a lot of education that goes in the kitchens. And this was not an easy process. But I'm, I'm really, really happy that even businesses, if they understand the value of it and people adopt it, you'll be able to see some change. For example, even after a while of uh, introducing this, these loaves of local whole wheat, people started noticing Oh, we thought the loaves of bread should be brown in color because we were told that the healthy whole wheat loaves are brown, but we do not see brown loaves. So this was when people started to learn that whole wheat flour is golden in color, but the industrial bakeries usually use a dye that is brown in color to sell brown loaves in order for people to think that they are healthier. Oh, wow. And this is legal. This doesn't take place. This doesn't take place only in Jordan. So the brown loaves you see mostly are white flour with a dye that is made from roasted barley shells that are ground. That's it. So it is the base is white flour. It is not whole wheat flour. So once the people started to learn that, oh, now we know the color of the right loaf of bread, people started to hold bakeries and restaurants accountable. They will go to the bakery and restaurant and tell them, please change the label. We do not want to see this. We want to know the real bread when we see it. And then the bakery will call and say, we do not know what people are talking about. Because many of the bakeries, they just follow the regulations that are set by the ministry, right? They do not necessarily know since since the whole wheat, let's say, bread hasn't been previously introduced, they do not necessarily know what people are talking about. But to me, this was very, very important part of the movement for the people to hold bakeries and restaurants accountable. What, for example, someone will go to a pizza restaurant and they will ask, where are you buying your flour from? I will not eat here if you do not change where you are buying your flour from. I want options that are local. And this is really important. And the businesses will start calling us and say, okay, what are my customers talking about? We need them to buy an alternative. Wow, I'm kind of mind blown as well. And 
I really appreciate you sharing this because I wouldn't even have known how to ask you about that because I certainly had no idea that wheat bread is supposed to be golden and not brown. So it sounds like education and unlearning have to be a really central and core part of all of this as well. And with that in mind, what are some of your calls to action for our listeners, whether people in Jordan or beyond, in terms of how we can reclaim more power over either the wheat and bread industries or otherwise our food systems at large? I think uh, start by noticing food producers around you, where they come from, where do they live, uh, what kinds of land or plots of land they use to produce their own food. Ask the bakery where they get their flour from, uh, who grows the wheat, what kind of loaf are you eating, uh, what does it mean to have a whole wheat bread loaf compared to the white bread loaf that you are eating, what are the differences, who is taking advantage of taking out the wheat germ and the bran in compensation for your health. Because if we think about cheap food, there's no such thing as cheap food because you always pay a price in regard to the cheap cheap food you are buying. This price can be political, this price can be your health, or this price sometimes can be at the expense of the cheap labor where this food was produced. So good food, good healthy food is not cheap. And you have to question, you have to ask questions. Why is bread, this loaf of bread is extremely cheap? Why is this loaf of bread is more expensive? Who is producing this flour and this flour? What does it mean to have roller mill flour, producing white flour? Who takes advantage of, let's say, me eating white flour? For example, here in Jordan, you will hear the government complaining that, oh, we do not have the resources to invest in the agriculture and we are forced not to do that and so and so. But yet here the government is putting a lot of funding for the, let's say, diabetes center. Mm. But if you do not have a community that is dependent on this very cheap white bread that is loaded with sugar and it is the main source of calories because it is cheap, they will not have diabetes. But it's a reverse way of thinking. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? Uh, yeah, I mostly read philosophy. Yeah, I don't have a, a name of the book specifically. I like to read for uh, Ibn Arabi, uh, who is an amazing philosopher. Uh, I read for Munir Fasha, who has many publications in English as well. People can look him up. He's an educator. I think the work of Judith Butler is very, very important as well. Mm. Yeah. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? Barakah, absolutely, all the way. 
Yeah, we really appreciated learning that from you today. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Uh, I think observing people how to, how they are, um, let's say, taking it on their own hands to reshape how the movement of reclaiming their own bread is taking place. For example, um, it's really, really touching to see that the culture of bread here in Jordan, it is no longer in the, let's say, the hand, the hand of the market. It is in the hand of people in regard to shaping it. So this is inspiring. It goes beyond me in many different ways. Well, Green Dreamer, this is a wrap for our conversation here, but we will have more references from this conversation shared at greendreamer.com in our show notes. And for now, Lama, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to speak with you. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Try to locate the barakah in your lives. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.